0: What is love? What does it mean that God is love? What is the true nature of love? If you talk to an unbeliever today, the one thing they'll be convinced of if there is a God, is that God is loving. The one verse in the Bible that no one has any problem with is that God is love. And yet, as one pastor puts it, our culture is... Taken that God is love and turned love into God, and what he means is that the the way that we're tempted to reshape, remold, edit out what love is, we then deify, and that becomes the ultimate value. This this sermon series that we've started is is following for a couple weeks through a series of chapters and topics laid out in this book, *The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love*. There's a copy available in the library. I'd really recommend if if you're interested looking through it um, Jonathan Lehman does a great job of of working through God's love and what we're going to look at this morning if you want to know the big picture is this aspects of God's love are very attractive to us and to the world but aspects of God's love are also very repellent there's a reason they nailed Jesus to the tree and it's not because he stopped being loving Jesus who was always loving offended and enraged everyone in Jerusalem and so at times, thousands would gather to him as they responded to his love, and then at the crucifixion, they responded to his love by nailing him to a tree. And so there's an aspect of offense and a, an attraction in the love of God. That, that's the big picture, but we will uh, dive in if you want to look at your notes. This, and this may seem like a, a sermon that, well, doesn't need to be preached. You no, know, after all, if we know anything, don't we know what love is? Um Last week, Pastor Gary exposed a number of ways that we, as a church and as a culture, are tempted to redefine love, to twist it. Um, this week, we'll try to look at what what is love. And I just encourage you to think through what is love fully. And the danger here is that we start with our experience. We start with the books we've read, the movies we've seen, the music we listen to, our own romantic and loving relationships, and then we come to the Bible. And whenever we do that, whenever we come to the Bible thinking we already know what is true, we're, of course, going to find what we think. We'll find verses that support what we think. But if we let pop culture, movie industry, music, poems, and our experience define things for us, we're really lacking any sure foundation. Now, what we're going to do is look at the love of God. Because my starting assumption is that however God loves Well, that's the way he wants us to love. I mean, John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I have given you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. So, if we can figure out how God the Father loves, if we can get our hands around that, then I think we'll be a good way towards figuring out how should we as a church be loving? What is the fullness of love? So, With that, we're going to move on to our first point, the difficult doctrine of the love of God. I lifted that title directly from this small little book by D.A. Carson, And, and my first point is almost largely taken from him. He has done such an excellent job of dealing with this topic, I didn't think I could improve upon it, so I just recommend, if you get a chance, to look through this. There's a digital copy that I've posted on Facebook you can get for free. And Carson does a great job of dealing with the difficult doctrine of the love of God and again this may seem counterintuitive to us the love of God shouldn't that be simple he sent his son he gave freely he redeemed us that's the love of God that is the love of God is that the fullness of the love of God well we shall see and the reason why this is difficult is the Bible speaks of God's love in at least five distinct ways at least five distinct ways now that is not to say that God has five loves and you know he on a given day, I said, "Well, which love shall I use today? I'll use number three, and I'll use number two. But rather, like a diamond that is multifaceted, the Bible can talk about God's love, and it is his nature, it is his character to love, expressed in at least five different ways. The first is God's Trinitarian love, God's Trinitarian love. And what I mean here is the, the love of the Father for the son, the love of the son for the Father. You see, if you stop and think about it, we primarily praise God in His love towards us in the saving, patient, merciful aspects of God's love. We praise Him for His salvation. We praise Him for His grace. We praise Him for His free gift. Yet, that's not the way the Father loves the Son. The Son needs no forgiveness. The Son needs no mercy. The Son needs no grace. We praise God because he loves us in spite of who we are. The Father loves the Son because of who he is. You ever stop to think about that? The Son is loved by the Father precisely because the Son is the image of the Father. The Son is perfectly obedient, the Son is delightful in God's eyes. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Son loves the Father for precisely the same reason. The infinite perfections of his Father, the Son delights to do the Father's will because he loves him. And that Trinitarian love is not a free gift that's undeserved. Rather, it is a response to the perfections of each member of the Trinity. And that's really not the way that God shows his love to us, is it? The son looks at the father and finds him lovely. The father looks at the son and sees him as deserving of love, worthy of praise and honor. So the father loves the son. The son loves the father. And this really is God's highest love. We'll come back to this, but this is the intra-Trinitarian love. It's really the basis for all of God's overflow of love to us. Secondly, there's God's providential love. Listen to these words from Job. This is just God's love and delight in his creation. He made it, it pleases him, he made it, and it is what he meant it to be. Listen to these words from Job, God speaking to Job. Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the wait in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Next time you listen to the birds chirp, realize that according to Job 38, they're crying to God for their food. And, and we know in Matthew 5 that not a single sparrow falls to the ground except from the, apart from the Father's world. He cares for his creation. He's a good and loving God. He loves his creation. He loves this world that he's made. It pleases him. His glory is reflected in it. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day into day pours forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. And God loves this world that he's made, the universe and everything in it. Thirdly, there's God's saving love. And again, these these aren't distinct loves, but they're different demonstrations of love, different ways that God loves. And this is what we most often sing and praise God for. This is God's desire for salvation. This is indiscriminate. The gospel is an invitation for all to come and believe. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. And and the gospel calls invitation to all. Ezekiel tells us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That God desires all to come to repentance. Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill says God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And God's stance towards each and every human being in this world is one of saying, please come, please be saved, please escape the wrath to come. Fourthly, there's God's electing or choosing love. And this is where we start to get a little bit more uncomfortable. But listen to these words in Deuteronomy. As as Moses is on the plains, and, and turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy 7. Moses is on the plains in front of Sinai, He is addressing the generation of Israelites who will enter and possess the land and he is reminding them of who their God is and what he has done for them. And there's no denying that God has a special relationship with the nation of Israel and a love and an affection for them that he does not have for the Canaanite, for the Philistine. And Moses is trying to explain why is this in Deuteronomy Seven says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and shows you for you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt Now do you see that it's not because you deserve it it's not because there's something special about Israel why does God love them because he loves them I love that. It's not because you are more numerous than any other people that the Lord set His love on you. For you're the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It, God just chose to set His love upon them in a special way that He didn't choose to set upon others. This is God's free choosing, electing love, and He places this love on whom He wills. Turn a, a two chapters over to Deuteronomy 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. See, if, 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 if the third love, God's saving desirous love is indiscriminate and extended to all equally, this is an aspect of love that God places on some and not on others. There's no escaping what this text says. God loves and set his love on Israel in a way that he did not set upon the Canaanite, on the Philistine, on the Ammonite. And if you are God's child here today, God has set his love on you in a way that he hasn't set on all. And finally, there's God's relational love. God's relational love. And and what I mean by this is the love that God has for his children once they become part of his family if you're a believer in Christ if if you are one who's trusting Jesus then you are a child of God you have the spirit of God by which you cry Abba Father and as God's child your fellowship with the Father can wax or wane based on your faithfulness listen to what Jude 21 has to say to this Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. That seems interesting. We often like to talk about how there's nothing you can do, nothing I can do to make God love you more or less. And that's true if you're referring to C or D. But yet, relationally, familially, you can raise God's frustration and anger as a father, not as a judge, and invite His discipline, or you can please Him with your faithfulness. You can get the standing ovation that that Stephen got when he was stoned to death, and he looked and the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but when Stephen looks and sees the heaven open, the Son is standing, and that's just God's pleasure in His children. 1 John tells us, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. But if we're walking in darkness, it's not that God has moved anywhere, but we have moved. And our salvation is still secure. God's commitment and his love to bring us to glory has not changed. But the experience of his love, the experience of our fellowship does wax and wane, and that is based upon our faithfulness. This is God's relational love. Anyone here who's a parent knows that you're committed to loving your children, yet you're Pleasure in them, in any particular moment, has a lot to do with how they're behaving themselves. John 15:9 to 10 says, "As the Father has loved me, so I loved. you abide in my love." And then Jesus goes on to tell us how we can abide in His love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love so there's an aspect in which our obedience our keeping of God's commandments helps us to abide in his love we remain in the light and our fellowship with the father is uncompromised and, and we gotta be careful not to confuse these things because we certainly don't mean that God's commitment to saving you can raise or fall God's desire for you to escape slavery to sin and be saved doesn't move an inch but yet there are real ways we can talk about remaining and abiding in God's love you're starting to see how this is a trickier issue And it requires a slightly more subtle stance. It's not as easy as taking a verse, I know what love is, God gave his son, that's love. Well, sure it is. In one sense, it's not how the father loves the son. The father didn't save the son, didn't provide salvation for the son. And so we gotta get a little more nuanced because the danger is that we'll latch on to one or two of these aspects of love, we'll like them, we'll grab onto them, and then we'll flatten everything else out to be that. And if we do that, we run into errors. For instance, if you just grab onto God's love of this world, his good pleasure and the birds and the animals, then you may end up, as some of the liberal churches do, thinking that the most important thing is recycling and protecting the environment, because after all, God loves this world. And there's truth to that, but if you just make that love, and you sort of put your fingers in your ears to all the other aspects, that's where you'll end up. if if the saving desirous love is all you see and nothing else, God's just please come, well, you'll start to shift towards a man-centered view of the gospel, a man-centered view of theology because it's all about God's desire to save and nothing else. And you'll you'll end up with a God who is up in heaven lonely, just hoping will come, please. And there's some aspect of truth to that picture, but certainly God's not lonely in heaven. If you just focus on God's electing love, then you'll, you can run the risk of ending up as a uh, cult. what's called a hyper-Calvinist who thinks that God just loves his children and hates everyone else. And, and of course, if you end up with just focusing on the relational love, you'll end up with legalism and you'll be asking questions. Have I been good enough for God to love me today? Have I been faithful enough for God to accept me today? I mean, we, we want to avoid these errors. We want to embrace a doctrine of the love of God that, that has all of this in view. And so, moving on to point number two, we're going to see that, as we try to bring these threads together, that God's love both attracts and repels us. I think we'll find this to be true. Both the unbeliever and, I think you'll see, the believer. God's love both attracts and repels us. Now, the reason for this is because that aspects of God's love are both conditional, unconditional, sorry, are both unconditional and and I really wrestled with trying to find a word here the blank's going to be conditional but I don't really like it but I couldn't find anything I liked any better there are aspects of God's love that are free undiscriminating given to all and there are aspects of God's love that are not free but responsive to things for instance we already saw the father's love for the son is conditioned upon his perfection it's because he is holy and perfect but let's just look at God's unconditional love first this is a love, what I mean by unconditional, is a love that goes to all without distinction, without qualification. First, God's providential love. Matthew five, forty-four to 45. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For the He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Every one of us as a sinner deserves God's wrath, and yet God loves his enemies. How does he love his enemies? We're breathing, aren't we? There's rain. There's sustenance. He, he provides for us. He doesn't owe that to us and God gave Hitler breath just as much as he gives you and I breath and it's his loving kindness that does that and nothing but that and he he extends it to all of us some of us may get more years than others but all of us are getting what we don't deserve which is mercy, patience, kindness Which, which is our second point God is patient with all I want you to stop and think about this not only do we deserve God's wrath his judgment Because of our rebellion to Him, but we deserve it now. Yet God is patient. We don't receive justice and we don't receive it immediately. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes, Do not presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And what Paul is saying is that God's delay of justice is an opportunity for each and every one of us to repent. It's an opportunity for each and every one of us to reconsider our ways. Let me show you what I mean by how this is loving. Imagine a a man was convicted of being a serial killer and sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. The only catch was he was to begin serving them in 25 years. So he's getting justice, but not immediately. And that's what each and every one of us gets. That's what the whole world gets. We, the second we're conceived, David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, God could justly render the verdict. And he gives us time. He's patient. Even for the lost, they get time here on earth away from judgment when God could justly bring it immediately. And that is God's loving kindness extended extended. So God is loving unconditionally in that he sends the rain and providence. He's loving unconditionally in that he is patient, he delays judgment. And thirdly, God's love is unconditional in the gospel invitation. We're not to preach the gospel to some people, but to all creation according to Mark 16:15, where Jesus tells his disciples Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel To the whole of creation The gospel isn't just for rich or poor Black or white American, European It's for everybody God invites all If you want Jesus, please come You can have him And a way of salvation has been made for all And these aspects of God's love Don't generally get people upset We we like this God wants to give us good gifts. That's good. God wants to be patient with us. That's good. God invites us to come to salvation. That's great. But it's the second half of this that tends to start irritating, bugging. We'll see what happens here. And again, I I wrestled with this unconditional love. The blank's gonna be aspects of God's love are conditional. I tried thinking of aspects of God's love are discerning. That didn't really fit I think our culture is so opposed to the notion of anything other than unconditional love that really there isn't a word pairing that fits well. If you think of one, let me know. I tried thinking of God's discerning love, God's um, evaluating love, but we'll go with conditional and unconditional. This is aspects of God's love are conditional. And, and I think our first example will help explain what I mean. The Father's love for the Son is not unconditional. Unconditional. It's not. For a love to truly be unconditional, when you say, why do you love him? Well, there's no reason, I just do. But that's not how the Father says he loves the Son. The Father repeatedly insists that his love for the Son and his delight in the Son is precisely because of who the Son is. It is conditioned upon the holiness, the perfection of the Son. I certainly hope your love for God is not unconditional, why do you love God? Is it because he's glorious? Is it because he's worthy to praise? Oh no, it's just because I do. That would be blasphemous. Our love for God is entirely, precisely because of who he is and what he has done. And this is where it starts to irritate people because God's committed to God, the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father. These are the utmost affections in the Trinity. And that's where when we start preaching the gospel to people, it can start to, why is this God after so much praise and worship? Why is he so concerned that people glorify him? I mean, aren't we tempted at times to view God as if he were some silly woman who wants everyone to tell her she's pretty? Why would a perfect God be so concerned about praise? And, and, and so we start to downplay those elements. We shift the gospel to be more man-centered. See, we're, we tend to feel most loved when we are made much of, and we think of love as that which praises us, that which shows our value and our worth, and that's what we want from God. And so we'll even write songs where we try to praise God that way. I was so thankful to, uh, to Dan Barth for altering the lyrics to one of the songs the cantata sang at Christmas, I want you to think about this. The song, Above All. Above all powers are like a rose trampled on the ground. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is sweating as if drops of blood, really contemplating the weight of the wrath of God, the guilt of our sin, when he's there and he says, Father, if it is possible, please let this cup pass from me. What is the reason, ultimately, why Jesus goes to the cross? The text is clear, and it is not Jesus saying, I'll do it for them it's nevertheless not not my will but yours be done the ultimate reason why Jesus goes to the cross is his love and commitment to the father he did not think of me above all he did think of me but not above all Jesus loves me but he loves his father more and that statement right there may very well start to say well then does he really love me and And if you're wrestling with that thought, it just shows how much we've bought into this. That if Jesus loves the Father more than me, then we're tempted to start thinking, well, does he really love me? But that's only because we want to be number one. We want to be on the top pedestal. We want to be made much of. And Why can't it be that the Son's love for us is infinite, amazing, that Paul can say things like that we would grasp the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of Christ's love for us, Why can't that be true? And yet at the same time say, but his love for the Father exceeds even that. But we're tempted to think, if that's true, then I don't really feel loved. And that's only because we're conditioned into this, if I'm not the most important thing, if I'm not the most valuable thing to you, then you don't love me. We've bought into this notion of love as unconditional affirmation. God loves us. It is amazing. We will praise him for his love for all of eternity. But God is committed to Himself, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, above everything else. You can't read through your Bible without seeing this. I will glorify my name, I will not share my glory with another. It's on every page. And alongside of that is God's amazing, unfathomable love for us. It is true, and yet it is not His highest priority. And that can offend us. Because it means that this world, and the gospel, is not ultimately about us. We are not the center of the universe. God is. God is. And people begin to get offended when they start hearing this. Because it's not all about them. And if it's not all about me, I don't feel loved. Secondly, The gospel invitation. We've seen that the gospel invitation is unconditional in that it extends to everyone. All are invited. There is no cost. There's no payment necessary. Anyone can be saved who wants it. And yet, on the other hand, the gospel precisely brings the condition that you must repent and believe. What happens to unrepentant, unfaithful, unbelieving people? Do they receive God's covenant love? Do they receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father? No. It is conditioned on faith. It's unconditional that the offer goes to all. You're all invited to the wedding. Right? But you've got to show up. You're all invited to be saved. But you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And again, this is what the world finds offensive. It's not saying Jesus died you that's offensive. It's any other attempt to get to god is going to fail that's where the world doesn't like it so much turn to psalm 7 turn to psalm 7 psalm 7:11 7, 13 God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day if a man does not repent God will wet his sword he has bent and readied his bow he has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts if he doesn't repent God's going to destroy him if we don't repent, if we don't believe, if we don't trust in the gospel, what will happen when we stand before God when we die? Wrath and fury and judgment that the world finds offensive and so that is precisely the teaching we tend as a culture a Christian culture to downplay it's hard to talk about a loving God who's angry at sin because the way our culture defines love, those two things don't fit together very well those two things don't fit together very well. It's interesting also to note that God's anger at sin is precisely because he is loving. It's not as though God is sometimes loving and sometimes angry and we've got to, you know, hope he's on a good day where he's being loving and not angry. No, God's anger at sin is precisely because of his love, of his glory, and his love for his son. If someone were to punch my wife in the face and knock her down, it is precisely because I love my wife that I would be furious at the person who did that. Precisely because I love my wife that I would be angry at the person who would knock her down. Precisely because God loves his glory, because God loves his son, because the son loves the father, God is furious at those who take his son's name in vain, those who raise their fist to him. God's wrath at sin is an expression of his holy love for his own name and glory. He's not sometimes loving and sometimes just. And finally, there's God's discipline of his children. Turn to Hebrews 5. Now this is within the relational love of God. But as God's children... God doesn't have a blind eye to us. As much as our standing is in Christ, our standing is that we have the righteousness of Christ it doesn't mean that when you and I sin, we may not invite God's discipline. He's, he's got an open eye, if you will, to our faithfulness. Hebrews 12: five through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And what that saying is this that as much as God loves you and I, and if we are in Christ, We are beloved. It doesn't mean that he has a blind eye to our failings. But here, as a loving father, God's love will observe and evaluate. And as we move into sin, as we move into disobedience, the loving father will bring correction. And this offends us within the church because this type of thinking becomes the foundation for things like church discipline, the foundation for things like brothers going to each other and calling each other lovingly to repent, and we don't like that. We don't feel loved when people do that to us. But make no mistake, this is precisely an aspect of love. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says if God doesn't correct and discipline you, he doesn't love you. That's what it says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, verse 6, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you've endured. God is treating you as sons. And yet this aspect is something that offends us even within the church. I've believed in Jesus. I'm forgiven. You're, you're walking in sin. It doesn't matter. God loves me just as I am. But, but, you, but you need to stop what you're doing. It's, it's causing conflict in the body. Oh, it doesn't matter. God forgives me. None of us are perfect, right? And we can make excuses for our sin and just talk about God's unconditional love and we forget, we neglect God disciplines those he loves. There's an aspect of God's love that has a very open eye to what we're doing. That is, at loss of words, conditional, because it responds to what we're doing. And that can offend us even within the church. You see, point C God's love and God's judgment work in harmony together, they're not opposed. God loves all sinners insofar as they reflect his glory. He opposes them insofar as they don't. God takes pleasure and delight in man as his creation and image-bearer, and yet opposes sin in man. So remember earlier we said that God's commitment, his love for his glory, his love for his Son, is is supreme. Well, because of that, God can't love that which hates his Son. God can't love sin. If he loves sin... He would cease to love his own holiness. And that's where the gospel becomes tricky because the gospel is God saying, I love you, and therefore I'm going to provide the means to make you lovable. I will send my son to die on a cross for you so that you can be transformed because you are not fit for love right now because we are all wicked and sinful. And the hope, the end of the gospel is that we would be made without spot or blemish, conformed to the image of God's son, in his presence, beholding his glory. See, In some senses, God's love is unconditional and in some senses, it's not. And it's a very hard concept to come up with. One guy I was reading came up with the term "contraconditional," but I found that that was just complicated things even more. The point being that God's love unconditionally goes out to all and invites all to come and the world loves that. But God's love also, when it finds us in the gospel, wherever you're at, judges you as unworthy. The gospel message is an announcement of our unworthiness, of our sinfulness, of our inability to please God on our own. And that offends us. So finally, how then should we, as a church, model God's love? This is God's love. If God's love has aspects of unconditional nature and aspects of, for lots of words, conditional nature, how then should we love Well, I've got a working definition here. Love is an affirmation and affection for another and their greatest good in Christ. Love is an affirmation and affection for another and their greatest good in Christ. And and that's chosen carefully. It's an affirmation. I'm happy. If we're loving, we are genuinely pleased and happy that you exist. You bear God's image after all. The gospel is here for you. And it's an affection. It's not just a logical fact, but it engages our emotions, and we are genuinely pleased and loving and happy for you. But it's directed, not just unconditionally, like, I love you just the way you are, period, full stop. But rather, our love is one that loves you the way you are and wants the best good for you in Christ. And in that sense, our love has a direction and a movement. So let's look at, first, a genuine concern for the needs of others. If we're a loving church, if we're a loving body, we will have a genuine concern for the needs of others. Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let each of us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jesus tells us if our enemy is thirsty, give him a glass of water. If we're struck on one cheek, turn the other. If we're asked to walk one mile, go two. And this is unconditional in, in aspect to everyone we're to be loving. If, if if you come across someone who has need, the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that everyone can be and should be our neighbor. And what love looks like when it comes across genuine need, when it comes across pain and suffering. And for a loving body, we're gonna extend that love. With a priority on our body, on our church, but to everyone. To everyone. Secondly, through a loving invitation of the gospel to all. I love this. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. I I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 5 20. (coughs) Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, some of your translations, if you have the New American Standard, will say, We beg you. God pleading through us, we beg you, we implore you, be reconciled to Christ. It's not enough to go out and simply say, Here's the gospel. If you're interested, um, God will forgive you. Okay, thanks for your time. That, that's not sufficient. That's not loving. Part of what it means to lovingly present the gospel is to genuinely plead with people, to, to call them to salvation. Think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets. How many times I would gather you up like a mother hen, but you were not willing. And, and, and a genuine, loving, loving, gospel invitation should be, emo- it should be genuine, it should, now we know that people can put this stuff on for show and we can just put the music on and play just as I am 34 times to try to generate emotion but that doesn't mean that we swing the pendulum the other way and say that a genuine gospel invitation is simply dry and you're the facts and you're a sinner and God loves you and if you'll believe you can be forgiven thank you, that, that, that would be insufficient God wants us to genuinely, affectionately be calling people to salvation. Thirdly, or point C, if we model the love of God, we will have a loving pursuit of faith and good works in the body. And this ties back to God's love for God and our love for God. If we love God above all things, if we love his glory above all things, because that's how God loves, so if we love in that way, Then our love for each other will involve a commitment to each of us glorifying God, pleasing God. And that's also where we're going to find our greatest joy. It's not like I have to choose between glorifying God and joy. We were made to be most fulfilled, most rejoicing in our glorying of God. The end game of creation is a glorified, redeemed humanity in the presence of God, glorifying Him as our greatest joy. That's what we were made for. We weren't made for mirrors. We weren't made to look in a mirror and receive joy from what we see there. We were made to see God and delight in and rejoice in that. And so we are going to pursue faith and good works in the body, One way that we do that is through fellowship and encouragement. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we've got to hold fast our confession, and one of the ways we do that is corporately gathering together and encouraging each other. And if we just buy into a definition of love as unconditional acceptance, with no agenda, with no anything, I just love you just the way you are, we're going to wrestle with doing this. Because when I encourage someone in this way, it becomes clear that I have a goal of where I want them to go. I want to encourage them to love and good works. Well, what if that's not what they're terribly interested in? See, it goes beyond simply I love you just as you are and I love you just as you are and I want to encourage you to be more faithful. I want to encourage you to trust Christ more. I want to encourage you to read your Bible more. I want to encourage you to hope in God more. See, my my love has a direction. It has a movement. It has, if you will, an agenda. I love It finds you just as you are but it doesn't want to leave you just as you are which is the way God's love reaches us. It also pursues love and faith and good works through correction and rebuke. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now everyone focuses on the how many times we're to forgive, but let's not miss the beginning. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Correct him. He doesn't say if your brother sins, if you want to, you can go correct him. We have an obligation if we see clear sin to go and try to restore people. But that doesn't feel very loving to us, does it? Because again, we've tied love to unconditional affirmation. And I certainly don't feel affirmed when you come and show me that I got something wrong in my life. And and the problem is this becomes a vicious cycle. If we postpone and delay and avoid whenever possible dealing with sin in others, it really means we're only ever going to do it when we're angry. Dr. Street, who came out here a couple of years ago, um, used to say, he with the sore toes goes. Meaning, if if Greg here is, is irritating me, I will pat myself on the back saying, I'm just being loving but not addressing it. He keeps, well, not forget irritate. He's sinning against me. He's, he's constantly lying to me. He's not, but let's just say he does. Um, he keeps lying to me. And I think to myself, well, I'll just be loving, and I'll overlook it, and I'll overlook it, and I'll overlook it, and I'll overlook And then finally, well, that's it. And now when I go talk to Greg, do you think I'm going to be patient and kind and gentle? No. I waited till I got good and angry. See, what I thought was love wasn't Love. And now all that does is reinforce to Greg the notion of, man, when people confront me in sin, that's not nice and loving and I don't like that. If instead, I really loved him, I'd probably go talk to him the first or second time, gently, not angry, say, hey, Greg, you know, um, I've been noticing that you've been saying things that don't actually seem to line up with what happens. Turn to Psalm 141. There's an important point in Psalm 141. This aspect of love most directly hits up against the culture's definition of love and what is creeping into the church as an understanding of love. We like to pit love and judgment against each other. We want to be loving, not judgmental. We want to be accepting, not critical. Well, there's truth to that. But you can't ultimately pit these things against each other Precisely because of verses like Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Now look at that. Let him strike me. It is a kindness. See, it's not that sometimes we're loving and sometimes we deal with sin. Ideally, we're doing both. Yes, we can confront in unloving ways. But we can't ultimately allow... A dichotomy that says there's loving acceptance and there's dealing with sin. Any parent here knows that one of the most loving things you can do is correct your children. It would not be loving for me to let Abner simply eat what he wants to eat because that would just be Nutella and juice. (laughs) Right? I'm loving to my son precisely in that I feed him things he doesn't want to eat and if he doesn't want to eat it for long enough I'll insist he eat it. And if he gets mad and starts talking back to his mom, I'll correct him because I love him. We, we get that with children. That's and the parent who doesn't do that isn't really loving their kid. And and somehow when we leave the notion of children and, and deal with people, we, we forget that and we just think that wouldn't be loving. I wouldn't I don't want to be seen as unloving. And so we, we allow people to walk by us and we don't lovingly try to help restore and and, and deal with things it is a kindness god disciplines his children whom he loves and if we love one another we are going to lovingly come alongside and say hey i think i see something in your life that maybe you're missing and i want to help i want to help you be more like jesus in that area we don't wait till we get angry we don't wait till we're peeved and we pull the log out of our own eye first as jesus tells us we don't want to be hypocrites But after we've dealt with whatever we've got going on After we've dealt with the log in our eye Jesus says you go and restore your brother He doesn't say pull the log out of your own eye And stay home and do nothing He says pull the log out of your eye Then go and restore your brother Finally We will model God's love By marking out The people of God Marking out The people of God Turn to Matthew 18. (coughs) We see a similar passage to what we just read in Luke, except Jesus goes into greater detail. This is the passage most commonly known as the the central text for church discipline. There's a lot more to it than that. Matthew 18, 15-20. If your brother sins, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now what is this binding and loosing that Jesus is talking about? Well, it becomes clear that in part it involves Treating some people who say they're Christians as though they're Gentiles and tax collectors. That's, I believe, the, the loosing. That some people, and, and this is a responsibility that we don't like. We get nervous with this. I want to make some observations. First, it's given to a local church. It's not given to individuals. This is not something that you and I can do ultimately. We can initiate the first step of this, but, but ultimately, without a local church, without a congregation, we can never get to the stage where we're saying hey we love you but we can no longer receive your profession of faith and that's a great great safeguard it takes a local church to do this and it's loving it's loving to do this as much as we feel that it's not but the the binding is the recognizing the binding is the is we we accept we acknowledge we rejoice in your profession of faith and the discipline is the we can no longer receive and accept your profession of faith. And it doesn't mean that our judgments are authoritative. It doesn't mean that if we receive someone as a brother, that that means they're saved. And if we you know, treat someone like a Gentile and a tax collector, that means that they're not. It just means that we, because we love God, are modeling our Father, and, and we're rendering what Lehman calls anticipatory judgments. Jesus has given us the authority and the responsibility on earth to mark out, as best we can, the people of God. And we do that through two means. We do that through baptism and membership. And what I mean by membership is simply the the joining of a body. Different churches have different mechanisms for doing this, whether it be formal membership, church covenants. That's not what I'm looking at. I'm just... What we did two weeks ago in baptizing those three young ladies was we as a body gathered around them, and we celebrated their profession of faith, we celebrated their obedience to Christ in baptism, and now we all recognize their profession of faith. That's why in the baptistry I asked them, are you trusting presently in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And they all said, yes. And we rejoiced. And that is an act of us of affirming and recognizing their profession of faith. And if, God forbid, one of them were to begin a course of sin or a course of of denying the gospel and one of us went and talked to them and two or three of us went to talk to them and they just kept hardening their hearts and stiffening their neck we may have to get to a point god forbid where we say as a body there is a day where we celebrated your profession of faith but now we we don't see it and and we fear for you and we, we love you but we can no longer receive you as a sister because of your, your your the way you're living and, and your unrepentance, or because of your denial of, of gospel truth, and so we mark out the body of Christ that way. T- turn to First Corinthians five one to six. This is a, this is an example, a case in point of this principle. And it's only if we grasp the dual nature of love that we're going to start to get comfortable with these things. Instead of doing what most churches do, which is, yeah, yeah, I know that these passages are here, but I don't want to read them, look at them, meditate on them, or do them. And if we do do them, we do them begrudgingly, we do them only when we have to, we do them as a last resort. And and I'm referring to the entire process of dealing with sin. Of course, delivering as an unbeliever is, is... the last resort, of course, but do we view active, ongoing correction as a healthy thing? Like my body's white blood cells hopefully are attacking the flu that's in me right now. I view that as a very good thing in my body. I'm glad that my white blood cells are not unconditional in their acceptance of everything in me. (laughs) My white blood cells have an agenda that my body be healthy, whole, And as a body, as a local church, we should have that same goal. We should do it in love. The situation here is Paul is rebuking the church at Corinth because there's a guy in the church at Corinth who's having an affair with his stepmother. And the church at Corinth is very loving, and they're very receptive, and they're very unconditional, and they're very affirming, and they pat themselves on the back saying, we're just so nonjudgmental. We're just so accepting. I mean, after all, God forgave us. God loves us. God doesn't judge us. So who are we to to say anything to this guy who's sleeping with his stepmother? And Paul lets him have it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. They're proud of it. Look how non-judgmental we are. Because they think that's love. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see, there are two loving purposes in this. The first is seen and it ultimately prioritized this man's salvation. See, they're not delivering this guy over to Satan because they hate him now and they shun him now and they look down their noses at him now. They're they're delivering him over to Satan. They're saying, "We, we have to pull our hands off of you. Precisely because they want him to see the Lord on the day of judgment. Precisely because they want his faith to be proven to be true. Precisely because they want him to repent and not perish. And I guarantee you, On the day of judgment, that man will find that a very loving thing indeed. If someone is asleep in a burning bed, you wake them up, even if it's going to disturb their sleep. And if someone among us is self-destructing in sin, we are not loving them if we just pass them by. And secondly... It's loving because it's loving for the purity of the body. We're to give a testimony of the gospel to the watching world. And Paul says, a little leaven leavens the loaf. If if we leave gross sin undealt with, it'll spread like gangrene, Paul says elsewhere. And the world watching will the world loves to mock and delight in preachers, Christians, pastors who self destruct in sin. They love to say, oh, yeah, look at those hypocrites. And to some degree, they're right. Jesus is most angry at religious hypocrites. Religious hypocrisy raises Jesus' ire more than anything. And and you have to wonder if the church did more of the step one and step two stuff, the one person going, the two or three people going. We could avoid some of the massive self-destructions of church leadership. See, dealing with sin in the body is loving for the person and it's loving for the body. But we won't view it as loving if we simply have a definition of love as unconditional acceptance. So to close, we just I challenge everyone here. I know that there's we've covered a lot of ground. But the doctrine of God's love is a complicated and and broad topic. And there are aspects of God's love that just reach out to everyone without exception, but God's love can also demand that we believe. God's love can demand that we be holy and pursue him. And our love for God will be active and produce obedience in us as well. And our love for each other will not let us walk by when we see signs of sickness and sin, but instead our love will drive us to people for their good and for their holiness. That's the full-orbed approach that the church needs to have in modeling God's love to the watching world. This church is an outpost. It's a consulate in enemy territory. We represent the conquered people of God. God has conquered our hearts. won us over to him. And now in enemy territory, we represent a consulate. We represent a little piece of God's kingdom on earth. And the world is looking to us to learn something about this God that we worship and serve. What will we show them? we show them what C.S. Lewis calls the heavenly grandfather you know the nice old guy who just hopes the kids are happy and has candy for everyone or will we model a holy and loving God the God of the Bible the God of the gospel Lord God we thank you for your word we thank you for your love we thank you for the gift of your son Lord help us to to love as you have loved to love each other as you love us and to truly and rightly model your love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.